Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, well, good morning, Mercy Church Northeast. I am so excited. Good morning. <laughs> um, yeah. So excited, so um, honored to be here, to be able to share the word of the Lord with you all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Derek Smith and have the honor of leading the Northeast campus. So as you know, we are in our Advent season, uh, season and series going through the Gospel of Luke. So this morning, our text is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you would pull out your Bibles and go ahead and turn there, turn on those phones, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And when you get there, say amen. As you turn there, um, I want you to direct your attention to the screens because I want to introduce to you all this morning the GOAT, ladies and gentlemen. Of all time, MJ. Now, some of you might want to debate me, and we can debate in between, you know, after the service. You can come down here, and I can cast the devil out of you if you want to just disagree with me. It's whatever. No, but this is MJ. And so the year was 1998. It was June 4th. It was the NBA Finals. And so it was the Chicago Bulls versus the Utah Jazz. And so this game was said to be one of the most iconic and intense games in the history of the NBA. And here's why. In game one, the Utah Jazz win. Game two, game three, and game four, the Bulls win. So now we come to game five, and the people are anticipating this moment. This is a hype moment. Everybody's trying to see what's going to happen. So the Bulls end up losing because Michael Jordan misses a three-point shot right at the buzzer. They had the potential to win. So now we come to game six, and now the pressure is really, really, really on. Can the Bulls pull this off? This is the moment that people have been waiting for, the anticipated moment. So there's about 10 seconds left in the game. The Bulls are down. If you go back and watch YouTube, you'll see the clip. But Jordan crosses up Brian Russell. Now, some people say he kind of pushed off a little bit. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But Jordan crosses up Brian Russell. It was so bad. I mean, he breaks his ankles. He's just sliding all over the course. And you just see Jordan just making the bucket. And the score now, the Bulls have ahead and they win their sixth NBA championship and title. And so in that moment, you see all the fans just running to the floor. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's excited. This is the moment everybody's been waiting for. The moment has come and the Bulls win. Like just imagine the energy in the room. Everybody clapping, just shouts of thunder. Like this is it. This is the moment. Moments. We all have them. There are these brief periods in our lives of time. There are anticipated moments. There are moments that we long for, moments that you have dreamt of. Maybe it was the moment that you finally got that ring put on your finger and you're no longer singing Beyonce, all the single ladies, you're engaged now. Maybe it was the moment that you got the news that you're pregnant and you're going to have your first child. Maybe it was the moment when you got married. 
Maybe it was the moment when you got that job promotion. Maybe it was the moment when you first got your license and you remember, yes, mom and dad doesn't have to drive me around town anymore because it's embarrassing. Moments, those moments we long for. But we also have those moments that we don't expect. Those moments that take us by surprise. Those moments that come into our lives and it brings with it pain and heartache, searing loss, those moments of darkness. I remember one of those moments for me, it was when the doctors came into the hospital room and told my wife, Lashana, that our son Judah was anemic in the womb and that he would need blood transfusion for the rest of her pregnancy and even after birth. And I remember in that moment being frustrated with God, asking the question, why us, God? Why us? What are you doing? Confused by what the Lord was doing in our life. Moments, we all have them. That is what we come to in Luke chapter two. We come to a moment. But church, it's not just any moment. It is the moment. It is a holy moment. This is the moment that everybody had been waiting for. This was the anticipated moment. You see, Jesus Christ, the son of God, was prophesied multiple times in the Old Testament that he will be the Messiah, the one who is to come to take away the sin of the world. So the people were waiting for this Jesus, this new king to come and usher them into a relationship with God. 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People were waiting. And then we get to Luke chapter two and bursting forth, here comes the story and the birth of Jesus Christ. The holy moment is upon us. And this moment changes everything. But this moment does not come the way people expected it. In fact, what we learn from our text is that this moment teaches us to trust the heart of God when you do not understand the hand of God. Trust the heart of God when you do not understand the hand of God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come this morning and we worship you and we thank you and we honor you. Lord, I'm reminded that this room is not just filled with men and women, but they're filled with men and women who have souls and who has hearts. And God, only your spirit can touch souls and only your spirit can change hearts. And so, Lord, I say increase in me as I decrease. God, speak through me, proclaim your word, your truth this morning, that we might become better worshipers and lovers of you, Jesus. You are everything. And so we ask that you would be exalted in this moment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people shout. Amen. So what I want to do is I kind of want to set up the scene for you and I kind of want to bring you into the details of what's happening in our text this morning. And from that, I want to point out two truths to you all. So here's some of the details. So Mary is this young girl who is most likely a teenager, which is very typical during that time of the age of marriage. She is a virgin who is betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph. And during this time in Israel, there were three stages to the marriage. So stage one was basically the fathers coming together and saying, hey, my son or my daughter is going to marry your son or your daughter. And so they agree on that. Stage two was the betrothal. This is when the, the future husband and the future wife committed themselves and said that we're going to marry each other. And then stage three happened approximately one year later where the bridegroom, she was literally waiting for the groom to come and sweep her up off of her feet so that she can have the marriage ceremony. So in ancient Israel, the bridegroom did not know when the groom was coming. 
It was a surprise. So Mary was waiting on Joseph. She had an expectation that Joseph was going to come. So here is Mary waiting to marry this man and have the wedding of her dreams. And what does she get? Luke chapter one, she gets an angel. Not just an angel, it's what the angel said. The angel says to her, Luke chapter one, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and you will become pregnant with the son of the living God. So she is waiting for her man to come and get her to marry her. An angel interrupts and says, you're going to be pregnant with Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is quite the opposite of what she was expecting. Everything about Mary's pregnancy is culturally disastrous. She's this young, pregnant teen mom, unmarried. And not to mention, Joseph, you are not the father. He's not the father. So culturally, this got Mary shunned and isolated from her community. She's most likely perplexed in feeling the weight of this moment. But this is Mary's moment. But it's not the moment she'd been expecting. And it's not the moment she'd been waiting for. But what we're going to find out is that something good will come from this moment. Look at verse one. It says, In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Other translations say that a census had to be taken. Now, a census is simply a counting of people or a counting of groups of people. We see this consistent all throughout the Old Testament. Basically, what happens is a census was used for the military to ascertain their strength. The census was used to count Jacob's family. It was used to count the total population of a group of people, but it was also used as a way to tax people. Nevertheless, a census had Joseph and his nine-month pregnant fiance head back to their hometown, Bethlehem. Now, it says that from Bethlehem to, uh, excuse me, from Nazareth to Bethlehem was 70-some miles on foot. So let, let, me, let me help y'all out a little bit. Mary, she nine months pregnant, y'all. She got to go back to Bethlehem on foot. But it also says that this journey was not just an easy journey. This was not just a brisk walk of the street to cookout. This was a very intense walk. It was said that she had to commute uphill, that it was in the middle of winter. Temperatures was most likely 30 degrees or below. And she's taking this trip in 10 mile increments per day because it's so laborious. So this is Mary. Now, if you're a mom and you have children, you know what nine months of pregnancy feels like. Now, some of you are thinking the devil is a lie because I wouldn't walk three miles nine months pregnant, let alone 70 miles. But Mary, she takes this 70 mile commute. This is Mary's story. And to top it all off, she's weary from the journey. And the text says that when she got there, there was no room for her in the end. Imagine that. She finally gets to the destination where she's going to give birth. And it says that there was no room for her in the end. Some scholars say that Mary most likely gave birth in open air in a very impoverished community or impoverished area, sharing the space of animals. This is Mary's moment. This is Mary's story. The only thing that she had at her disposal were these long strips of cloth that she swaddled Jesus in and she placed him in a manger. She had no bassinet. She placed her son in a manger, which is this wooden structure that animals ate out of. 
Everything about Jesus' story points to poverty, points to obscurity, rejection, and loneliness. I mean, this is Jesus Christ, the son of the world, and he's born in the lowest conditions. And it makes you scratch your head and wonder, God, why? Why couldn't you have made it easy for Mary and Joseph? Why did you have to have it go this way? And I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, I wonder to myself, God, why? Church, what do you do in those moments when God is orchestrating things in your life and it's not going the way you want it to go? What do you do in those moments when the hand of God is laden with pain and sorrow? What do you do when God's will for your life is a thorn? What do you do when your life is surrounded by darkness and you scratch your head going, God, I don't understand why so much pain. Why did this have to happen to me? What do you do? Well, two things we see from our text this morning. Number one is you understand that the hand of God is not convenient nor comfortable. We see that in verses two through four. The hand of God is not convenient nor comfortable. By show of hands, how many of you have ever been running late? Come on, be honest, you in church. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, God has an extra big mansion in heaven for you because you never run late. But you're running late. So you wake up, here's how it goes. You wake up in the morning, the alarm clock goes off and you go, snooze, I just need five more minutes. And then it goes off and you hit it one more time. And before you know it, you're running late. And when you're running late in the morning, everything else in your day begins to spiral out of control. You're late for everything, every single thing else. And so maybe for you, you finally get up and you get in the car and you're driving and you get to stop signs and stop signs become yield signs. Mm, I may or may not be confessing sin this morning, but hey, I'm free in Jesus' name. Stop signs become yield signs or you get to the traffic light and you're driving and every single stop light turns red on you. And you're sitting there and you're like, this is Satan. This is the devil. I bind the devil in that stop light in Jesus name turn green. And you're just like naming him, claiming it over stop lights. But what about when you get to the carpool line? Maybe you have kids and you got to drop kids off. You got to drop grandkids off. And you're watching somebody get an instrument out of the car. And then you're watching a kid get out here and a kid get out there. And you're like, good Lord, how many kids got to get out this van? I'm just trying to drop my one child off. You know, or it's the grocery store. This is the one that bothers me. As you go to a store, you're running late. You want to grab some quick things. Maybe you got to grab something quick before you get to work. And you get in the store. It's one o'clock on a Tuesday and every checkout line is backed up. And you're like, you people, why do you not have jobs? Why are you not at work? Like, that's what I'm thinking. You're inconveniencing me right now and I'm frustrated. But in those moments of inconvenience, in those moments of waiting, your blood starts to boil. You feel the anxiety. You feel the frustration. Your day is disrupted. Things are not going the way you want it to go. You feel out of control. I get it. But what if you had a different perspective, church, and you began to think that even in those moments of waiting in the carpool line, even in those moments of waiting at the stoplight, even in those moments of being disrupted, that God has ordained every single moment and he's trying to teach you something. One of my least favorite things is when I get a call that one of my kids is sick at school and you need to come get them because I couldn't get a hold of your wife. You know what I do? Lashana, what are you doing? Are you in the meeting? Because I'm about to go to the meeting. I need you to go get it. And then I have to go get my kid. And the whole time I'm thinking, you just inconvenienced me. Last week, the school had a power outage. They sent out a text message at 11.55 saying, come get your kids at 12 p.m. 
because school is shutting down. I'm literally getting off the exit, walking into a meeting. Disruption. I am frustrated, but what if we began to see that God is ordaining every single moment in our lives, whether big or whether small, and what he's trying to get us to do is come to this place and say, God, what are you teaching me? God, what do you have for me in this moment? Maybe it's a discipleship moment with your child. Maybe it's a discipleship moment with a friend. Maybe God wants you to be quiet or still before him. What is God teaching you in these everyday moments? We must understand that life does not go the way we want it that life will be filled with inconveniences and many disruptions, that life will not be comfortable. And here's why. You and I are not the author of life. We are not in control. We were created by the author of life, Genesis 1.26, and we were created for the sole purpose of glorifying him and fulfilling his plans for our lives, Genesis 1.28. God in his providence is fulfilling every single plan in my life, in your life, and in the world, and it shall come to pass. I love how a pastor by the name of John Piper describes the providence of God. He says, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. Think about it this way. The hand of God is at work in your lives. He is moving and orchestrating every single detail of your life. And that sole purpose is that his glory shall be received and that you will live a life on his purposes versus your purposes. And sometimes that means that pain will come and comfort, discomfort shall come, just like we see in the life of Mary and Joseph. But God has a plan for our life. When you look at Luke chapter 2, Jesus was prophesied multiple times in the Old Testament. In Micah 5, 2, it says that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. So God orchestrated every detail for Mary, nine months pregnant, and Joseph to get to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem. Now, up until then, census had not been taken in years. So God made a census take place that had not taken in years so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem. Could God have made it easy for Mary and Joseph? Absolutely. But God is not always in the business of making our lives easy. God is not always in the business of making our lives comfortable. He never promised that our life will be easy. He never promised that we'll live our best life yet. He never promised that all things are going to go our way. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible teaches this pattern that God allows thorns and thistles and trials and tribulations and pain and suffering in our lives that sometimes we fully don't understand why he's doing it or what he's doing. But he's up to something. And something good comes out of what God is doing. Just look at the life of Job. Just look at the life of Paul. Look at the life of Jesus. Every one of us in this room, God has given us a lot in life. And he's ordained that lot before the foundations of the universe. I love what Proverbs says. Chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Whatever your lot is this morning, church, it may not be easy. It may not be a cakewalk. In fact, you will not be. It will be filled with trials and tribulations because Jesus said this in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world that in me you may have peace in every single trial. Paul will say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, somebody say all things. things. 
We know that in all things, not some things, but in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. Paul would later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 now says that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He would then go on in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 and he says, my brothers and my sisters be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Job chapter 13 verse 15, Job would say, yet though God slay me, yet will I trust him. So church, when the diagnosis comes, when the marriage starts to fail, when the children walk away from the Lord, when the grandchildren walk away from the Lord, when your parents get a divorce, when the storms of life overtake you, when darkness encamps all around you, what do you do? You understand that the hand of God is not convenient nor comfortable, but you do number two. You surrender and trust the heart of God. You surrender and you trust the heart of God. Mary, she had her whole life ahead of her. She could have lived a normal life like every other young teenage person around her, but God had a different plan for her life, a different plan for the world. God had called her to birth the son of God, Jesus Christ. And Mary's only response to this calling was to simply lift her hands and say, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. To surrender means that she had to submit herself to God willingly and freely letting go of her own will. To surrender means you have to submit yourself to God willingly and freely letting go of your own will. I remember when God first called me into full-time ministry, I had finished my degree, I got a master's degree in special education, finished grad school, and I started teaching kids with learning disabilities. God orchestrated a series of events and I'm at a coffee shop meeting with the college pastor of my church. And he looks at me and he says, we have a job for you. We want to offer you a position on our college staff. I'm like, yes, the moment has finally come. This is what I've been expecting. I've been praying and believing God to go into full-time ministry. It's finally here. And he goes, you'll be a college resident and you'll have to raise support. And I go, Tim, I beg your pardon, support raising. Support raising, what is that? Um, and so in that moment, I began to wrestle with God. I go on a mission trip to Kenya a couple of weeks later. I'm in Kenya for about three weeks and almost every night I hear the Holy Spirit just nudging at me, quit your job, give it up, I'm calling you. But in my heart, I'm like, God, that doesn't make sense. That's not a part of my five-year plan. I'm a type A kind of guy. I'm a five-year, 10-year planner. It's all planned out. The fact that I'm in this pulpit this morning is not a part of my plan. That's the Lord orchestrating this. And I had to wrestle with the Lord. God, this is not how I want to live my life. I have a family to raise and you're calling me to raise support. But I'm reminded of verses like Luke 9, 23, where Jesus says, if anyone desires to follow me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me daily. Jesus also preparing for his death on the cross in the garden of Gethsemane. He pleaded with the father three times, God, would you take this cup of wrath away from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Verses leading up to that, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He sees the cross ahead of him. He knows that he's about to die on the cross. He feels the weight of the world upon his body. He feels the sin of the world consumed in his body. He knows what is about to happen. 
And he says, God, the wrath that sinners deserve, can it pass me by? He says, but it's not about me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. A second time, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that they're about to place a crown of thorns upon his head, that they're going to drive nails into his hands and drive nails into his feet, that they're going to beat him with a cat of nine tails over and over until his intestines pour out of his body. He sees that and he says, God, is there a plan B? But it's not about me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then a third time, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, God, can the wrath for sinners be passed by? I didn't do anything wrong. They sinned against you. And Jesus said again, not my will, but your will be done. That is surrender, that in that moment, Jesus throws up his his hands and he says, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed father. I surrender all. Surrender is about you letting go of the things that you are holding on to so that God can give you something greater and something better. Surrender. Mary had to surrender. But not only did she surrender, she had to surrender and she had to trust. She had to surrender to God and she had to trust the heart of the Father. I love how Tim Keller defines trust. He says, trust is accepting what God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Trust isn't easy. Trust doesn't feel good. In fact, trust is not even a feeling. Trust is this deep down confidence that God is who he says he is, that he is faithful, that he is a promise keeper, that all the promises in God are yes and amen. Trust says, God, it doesn't feel good. God, this is painful. God, this is hurting. God, this doesn't make sense. But I trust you, God. I know that you are faithful. I know that you can do it. So I am committing myself to you, God. That is trust. Can you trust God when all hell breaks loose in your life? Can you walk with Jesus with joy when darkness surrounds you? In these moments of distrust, we must learn to remind ourselves of God's past faithfulness. To look back and say, God, I've seen your hand move before. God, I've seen you set free. God, I've seen you save. God, I've seen you deliver. God, I've seen you heal. God, your word says that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. A thousand may fall in my side, 10,000 at my right hand, but none shall come near me. God, your word says that you are ever present help in time of need. Your word says that the righteous run to you and you are a shelter. Your word says that you are a provider. And so God, I'm reminding myself of your faithfulness. That's what we do in moments where we're prone to distrust the Lord. I remember two months before my wife gave birth to our third son, Judah. The doctor said, Miss Smith, Judah is anemic and he's going to have to have intrauterine transfusions because your body is attacking his red blood cells. As soon as, you, as, soon as Judah makes them, your body attacks them. And so we're in and out of doctor's appointments. My wife is getting these transfusions, these long needles into her belly. And I'm like, God, why? Why the pain? Why the frustration? Why us, God? No, this is an inconvenience. And then we get 
to delivery. They take Judah two weeks early. My wife gets 60 seconds with Judah. And then he's taken off and we're walking down the hallway. I'm with the nurse. We get to the station where they do vitals. And they begin to say, Judah can't breathe on his own. He's really yellow. And then they call upstairs to the NICU and they start talking back and forth. And in that moment, I knew something bad is about to happen and this is not going to go the way we dreamed of. And in a moment's time, a father is separated from his son and Judah is taken up to the NICU and my wife and I is in, in the room and we're waiting, 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 wondering what is happening with our son. He then gets transferred to a different hospital. They say, well, he has cytomegalovirus. He probably has brain issues. There's probably liver damage. He probably can't see. He probably can't hear. All the diagnosis come in. And then to top it off, they look at my wife and say, you recovered really well. We're going to discharge you. But Judah will stay. And I remember my wife looking at me with tears in her eyes saying, I just want my baby. And I am helpless and I'm hopeless and I'm wondering, God, why so much pain? Why? What have we done? Could there be another way? This does not make sense to me. And that moment, our moment, the moment we anticipated for our third son was filled with so much pain and tears and as I look back, I go, God, I know you are faithful. As I look back over that situation, as I look at my son Judah today, who is two years old, who has zero issues, completely healed. All of the diagnoses were fake. They were not real diagnoses. Just amazing what the Lord did in that moment. As I look back over that, I am like, God, without you, I am nothing. And I realize that the God we serve is a God who walks with you when you are in the fire, when darkness surrounds you. He is a faithful friend walking beside you saying, lift your head. I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your faithful father. I am a friend to the friendless. I got you, son. I got you, daughter. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. With God, there is nothing impossible. You have a sympathizing savior. You know why? Because in Luke 2, Jesus came. And you know why Jesus had to come? Because you and I sinned against a holy God. And we were separated from this holy God destined for eternal damnation. Our moment would have been standing before this holy God and he looks at us and says, depart from me, I know you not. And our moment would have been eternal damnation with Satan. But because Jesus came in Luke chapter two and ultimately lived a life of rejection and loneliness and ultimately stretching out and surrendering his life to the will of his father, being crucified and going down into the grave. And on the third day, raising from the grave, because of that moment, you and I now have salvation, a free gift of God. You ought to rejoice with me this morning. Oh, my God, because salvation is free. You did nothing to earn it. But Jesus being so good proved to us that he can be trusted and that he is faithful. Jesus is faithful. He walks with us. So when you are prone to distrust God, you remember to trust the heart of God 
when you don't understand the hand of God. You see, Christmas time isn't just all about putting a smile on your face and singing Christmas carols. It's about hope. It's about hope in Jesus, hope in a good Savior. And we hope in what we see in Luke 2, but we hope in the future return of Jesus. For at his second coming, the King will return to us on a cloud of victory. And every pain will lose its truth in the eyes of faith. We'll see. Will you bow your heads this morning? I want us to take a moment to quiet our minds and souls and reflect. And we're going to do two things this morning. We're going to surrender some things to the Lord and we're going to pray. And so maybe you're here this morning and you need to surrender a loved one to Jesus. You've been fighting for control. You've been trying to get ahead of the situation. And the Lord is saying to you this morning, let it go. I am God. I am in control. I'm working it out for good. Maybe it's a wayward child or a grandchild. Maybe you've received some bad news this season. And you just need to surrender that to the Lord and trust his heart. And know that he is for you and not against you. Maybe it's besetting sin. Maybe there's a sin pattern in your life this morning that has you gripped. And the Lord is saying to you, I want that. Sin will lead to death and destruction. Sin always promises to fulfill, but it always underdelivers. And the Lord is saying, surrender that thing to me this morning. Give it to me. Or maybe for you is surrendering your life to Jesus. You come to church, you sing the songs, you go through the motions. But Jesus is saying to you this morning, I want your heart. I don't want your religious activity. I want all of you. So surrender your life to me. And you can just say a simple prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. Save me. I want you. Come into my life. Change me. We have our prayer team down front. And so maybe this morning you just need to come and pray with someone. Or maybe you just need to sit in your seat and you need to pray with your spouse or pray with a friend. Whatever it is, you take the next two minutes to surrender and begin to pray. And then I'll close us out in prayer. Jesus, we don't understand why you do what you do sometimes. We don't understand why you allow and will certain things in our lives. But Jesus, we know that you are so good and that you are for us. You said that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so God, I pray for my brother and sister who is holding on for dear life this morning that they will find hope in you, Jesus, joy in you, Jesus, peace in you, Jesus. You are everything. You are the glue. You are the life, the beginning, the end. You are all that we need. You are our sufficiency. And so, Lord, our reasonable response this morning is to throw up our hands and surrender, as the great hymn says. And as we surrender, God, to trust your heart, you are good. 
and you've shown us how good you are because you came. God, you came for us. You did not leave us as orphans, but you came from us. God, from heaven to earth, that shows us how much you can be trusted. So, Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We love you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing in a moment, maybe for some of you, you still need to come down front to pray or maybe you want to stay remaining at your seats praying. However you feel led, let's by faith sing to a God who is good and for us.